what makes a good recruiter? Like there's a lot, right? Like everybody isn't the cool guy. Everybody isn't, you know, the straight edge. Everybody isn't the offensive coordinator persona. Like everybody, every, that's what makes staff so amazing. Like if everybody was like Mike Bloomgren, you guys wouldn't have a chance. Like everybody has to be different, different makeups, different backgrounds, different styles. So then when your program, like, you know, who should be the lead. Uh, so, so I went down the road and I just kind of prepped this for you around if I was running uh, recruiting, if I was running a front office in college, um, this is what I would say. I would say that the recruiting philosophy is as follows. To seek and uncover players who have an infectious love for the game, have the ability to develop emotional intelligence, and are driven to find deeper meaning around who they are and what the game can do for them. They must have grit, which is passion and perseverance. They must be a seeker, and they must have a sense of wonder, even if it's buried deep below the surface. Welcome to the Up Close and Personnel podcast show. This is your host, Alex Brown. If you're a returning listener, thanks as always for being a fan of the show. And for those that are new to this deal, remember, please hit the subscribe button and rate the show from wherever you're at and share the podcast with anyone you think that needs to learn more about the evaluating and the recruiting process. That's players, that's coaches, parents of these student athletes that can learn and benefit from hearing what we talk about on this show. And this is a show that's that's made for you as a listener. So please continue to hit me up, tweet at me with any topics that you'd like to hear more about, or email the show at upcloseandpersonnel at gmail.com. Now, this week, our guest needs absolutely no introduction, from playing wide receiver at Pitt and rooming with Larry Fitzgerald to working under Pete Carroll as a Pac-12 championship quarterback coach at USC, to producing the lead 11 with Trent Dilfer and countless more documentaries with more on the way. Yogi Roth from the Pac-12 Network joins us this week, and he's an incredibly talented analyst, but more importantly, just such a, a real genuine person to talk to. He really brings it this week on the episode, and I couldn't stop taking notes during this one. So coming to you from the West Coast and the Pac-12 Network, here is Yogi Roth. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um... Yogi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's cool to have you on the show because I'm such a fan of of what you do and the show that you have and growing up seeing, you know, the Elite 11 stuff. But um, I know you, you kind of are in a, a little bit of transition. You move in houses and got a little man on the way. Year one anniversary coming up, kind of uh, all the milestones at once. How are you holding up? You know, we're, we're doing well. We're, we're in it, you know, like in athlete, athletics, you probably say in recruiting or in coaching, you, you meet people where they sweat. It's one of my favorite phrases. Like, I'll meet you where you sweat. Like if you and I were going to go talk and we weren't quarantined, we'd probably be playing catch right now. So for our family, it's, we meet each other where we sweat. So like, I'm not the best math teacher for our five-year-old, but I'm a pretty good gym teacher, you know, so like I'm meeting where I sweat, like, and, and same thing for Amy. So we're, we're in it. We're luckily uh, haven't been impacted like other people have in terms of death or anybody in the hospital in our family. So trying to live with perspective or at least compete to do that every day is is how we're going. But there's definitely some, you know, anxiety around bringing a human into the world amid this world that we're in and moving. But it, it's enough of a distraction, I think, to keep you busy. 
That's good. That's good to hear, man. And another distraction, uh, I know you were super busy with the draft. Um, now we're about two weeks away from it. And honestly, so your, your question, the way you approach things on your podcast, you, you try to ask questions you don't know the answers to. I try to do that. I'm not, not quite there yet because I, I still want to kind of figure out this flow. But like you have a really good approach for the draft. Like I wanted to know who you learned kind of how to evaluate and cover the draft because on your little videos, you know, you're, you're talking top traits, NFL outlook, best scheme projection. And it's kind of consistent. You got a good flow to it, but like, who did you learn that from and how was putting all those videos together? Cause I'm sure that took a while. Well, number one, I think like you, like, and congrats on the podcast. I, I love it. I think it's really cool. And I think school should do this. Um, and you guys are obviously ahead of the curve in that regard. Not surprised with, with Coach Bloom and, and you guys at the helm there. But for me, and, and I brought this up, uh, not that people can see it necessarily, but I, I went through in my office, I'm kind of redesigning here. And I found like playbooks from way back in the day. So this is 2007 USC playbook. And this is what I had to build, right? When I was, you know, a version of you, like the younger version of you. <laughs> and, and I built a bunch of them. And I have all these folders that I've been going through that have notes from like when Monty Kiffin came to speak with us or psychologists came to speak with us. And then uh, even Coach Bloomberg, and I gave him a bunch of my, my folders when I was at SC, did what, what Pete did. And he learned it from Lou Holtz, where you have a manila folder. And for every game week, you break down like a section. And that's Monday's notes. Tuesdays in the tab, it's like Notre Dame at USC, November 5th, 2005, or whatever the date was. And I go back to that a lot. And then even as a broadcaster, um, I always say that my biggest, my biggest opportunity and my biggest responsibility is to live and listen like my life depends on it. Right? So if I can do that, which is not easy, because especially broadcasting, you, you want to talk, right? Or in NFL evaluations, you want to say them. But throughout my time, I've just tried to listen, right? So whether that's from Trent Dilfer at the Elite 11 or a high school coach at the Elite 11 and just kind of piece little things together. I always have a little notepad with me and um, I just kind of decided a long time ago that I was going to try to listen as much as I can. And then as an evaluator, I don't think it's right to hammer home negative things about players when you really don't know them. Like I can give you ups and downs in every practical player because I've seen every snap of their careers, but I couldn't really break down Clyde Edwards Elaire's game other than what I heard Herb Street say in the title game. You know, like I don't, I don't, ha I, and I haven't called his coaching staff. Like I don't have that. So I don't, my thing is I won't go to places I don't know. And I think a lot of analysts, you saw it on the draft, like they just go to things they don't know. And, and a pet peeve of mine in the business is you never have to like, you, you're never held accountable. And I want to be held accountable. Like, and I would tell David Shaw my evaluation on Colby Parkinson, just like I did on Pac-12 Networks. And I've always felt that as a theme for me as a personality or a broadcaster. I would tell you to your face. And some people don't agree with that. Like Collinsworth doesn't want to get to know players or coaches because he's like, I don't want to have to criticize people I like. I want the other way. I want to know you so well that I tell you to your face. And yeah. same thing with the draft prospects. So I think all of that kind of comes out in a relatively positive evaluation with some truth in it but always kind of looking towards like a glimmering light versus like the dark shadows or a dark cloud. Well, I think the, the other thing is one, you're, you're not uh, capable of knowing what that kid's being coached to do or taught to do. And then at the other side of it, because, you know, from my perspective, having been in media and trying to cover the whole landscape of it, um, you don't have a scheme to recruit for or scout for. 
and you don't have a team that you're building around. So like you're trying to keep in perspective, all 32 teams. And the best way to do that is to figure out, okay, what does he do? Well, what scheme would fit him? And that's the thing that I enjoy listening to the most. Cause it, it is, it's easy to get caught up in the can't uh, descriptors. He can't do this or doesn't do this. And it's like, like, let's not focus on that. Cause the three teams that like this kid may take him in the third round, 20, 29 other teams may not even like him. So that was just curious to me. I just yeah, wanted how to do you hear balance that even now though. How, I'd be curious for you as an evaluator now, like in college, how do you, how do you balance like when you watch a high school tape? Because you can't know everything about him and you're trying to fit to maybe a system, but, but maybe you're not like, maybe you're just like, this dude's a ball or let's just get him here and we'll figure it out. How, how do you balance that, that? That happens a lot. Um, uh, you know, it's as far as the starting point, um, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? Like at some point I'm going to have to get deep into the weeds, but I got to decide if this guy's recruitable in the first place. So I'm going to skim through and figure out what's his GPA at the start of it to not even, I'm not going to waste my time on a 2.3 because I just know the difficulty. But even if I don't have the GPA, I'm going to just watch the highlight tape just to get a feel for the player. And each position, we have a different kind of set of criteria. So like if the kid's, you know, a 5'10 quarterback, he's got to be special. And I have a soft spot in my heart for a 5'10 quarterback because I had De'Aaron King at Houston. But I think it's kind of position by position as you identify these guys and what, what helps kind of, kind of offset that as you're in the initial stages is like, kind of cross-referencing with the the verified times, the verified measurables. Okay, like from a athleticism standpoint, can he play at our level? And I don't necessarily try to like eliminate guys that aren't elite. You really want to look for the lower bounds. Like, okay, does he cross this threshold? And then as I'm watching the film, does he have a, like NFL guys will say like Bill Poley and guys like Mike Tannenbaum, do they have make it traits? Like what's their make it trait? for us and does it fit into what we're trying to do and i think that's kind of like the starting point that's cool i'm writing that down and make it traits yeah i always say like unique traits that's a big one for for me especially a quarterback like what are his unique traits is it above the shoulders is it arm talent is is his feet is it second reaction but i like the make it trait i could i could see that like does he have the stuff to survive yeah and thrive you know yeah and and um there's, there's a lot of info out there. I definitely want to pick your brain on the quarterback position in a second. But as we get started, uh, like I ask everybody on the show, I've got my five questions for you. So in your mind, what makes somebody a good recruiter? You, you did it. You, you did it at USC. And now you get to kind of really take a deep dive at everybody in the Pac-12. And not just the Pac-12. I know you're, you love ball, so you're talking to a bunch of different people. But what makes someone a good recruiter? Yeah, what a what a cool question. You know, I, I was wrestling with that uh, after we talked prior to this podcast of like, what makes a good recruiter? Like, there's a lot, right? Like, everybody isn't the cool guy. Everybody isn't, you know, the straight edge. Everybody isn't the offensive coordinator persona. Like, everybody, every that's what makes staff so amazing. Like, if everybody was like Mike Bloomgren, you guys wouldn't have a chance. Like, everybody has to be different, different makeups, different backgrounds, different styles. So then when it your program, like, you know, who should be the lead. Uh, so, so I went down the road and I just kind of prepped this for you around. If I was running uh, recruiting, if I was running a front office in college, um, this is what I would say. I would say that the recruiting philosophy is as follows to seek and uncover players 
who have an infectious love for the game, have the ability to develop emotional intelligence, and are driven to find deeper meaning around who they are and what the game can do for them. They must have grit, which is passion and perseverance. They must be a seeker, and they must have a sense of wonder, even if it's buried deep below the surface. And, and I, I could break all that down. I chose the word super specifically. A lot of them reflect me, which I think programs have to reflect the head coach. So in this exercise, I was the head coach, you know, in terms of what I want to come in and bring into the program. Uh, but then this is really based on my work over the last 15 years as, you know, 20 years really as a player to guy who's at the opening every year and everything in between, which is the college football world and signing day, et cetera. And then the draft is, as we've referenced. And I just think, as I, as I said, the first sentence to me was to seek and uncover players to an infectious love for the game. Like, I just think it's that. And I think that's the biggest problem now and the biggest challenge, because I think a lot of players that I see don't love it. You know, they just don't love it. They're just good at it and they get an education from it. And I think it's okay to not love it, right? I call it the wonder switch. Like it's okay that your sense of wonderment, right? Think of a wonder switch as like a light switch. Yeah. Your sense of wonder gets turned off. I was talking to Coach Bloomgren about this the other day of like, you know, all too often, and wonder is tied to imagination if you look at the science of our brain, right? So our, our imagination is always going. Like you could be imagining the world falling apart right now because of COVID-19. Or you can imagine you guys winning a conference championship. Like you're going to imagine you're which playing, way is you're, it going you're playing your own narrative in your head. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like, and that, so that's not going to stop. So where's the wonderment, right? And the little kid walks into your stadium and he wonders and he thinks like, yeah, I could score touchdowns here. That's his sense of wonderment. Right. And some kid walks in the Rose Bowl and he's like, yeah, I can go win a natty here. Right. That's the wonderment they feel on their visit or when they're 12 and go to a game. But then social media, recruiting, coaches, family, girlfriend, all these things turn the wonder off. Boom. Wonder switches off. Right. So then they don't have a love and a, you know, an enjoyment for the game. So I think the first thing a recruiter's job is like, can you unearth that this human being still has a love for this game? Or do they never have it to begin with? Do they just do it because it was cool because their dad did it because their brother did it? Or like, or do they really have a love? Because it's hard. And I think it's only going to get harder to figure out like that step. If that's step one as a recruiter, it's going to get harder with social media because of the name, image, and likeness thing. So now, why am I playing? Well, if I have 100,000 followers, I can get five grand a post. Okay, I can get a thousand bucks a post or a hundred bucks a post. So I'm going to play for that. Okay, if you, if you pull on that red thread, Alex, like all of a sudden, what if that kid doesn't play? But he's getting all these money for these posts. And now all of a sudden, his one world is telling him was one thing and his reality is telling another. And now we have anxiety, depression, suicide. You know, so like to me, like you have to have a baseline of a love for the game. Yeah. And I would push on that. And I don't care how good somebody is. Because I don't think you can, I don't think you, I think you can recapture it. I don't think you can recreate it. I don't think you can recreate a love for the game at 18, 19 years old. It's like the the why factor is so different because there's so many things. There's so many like external influences that just bombard kids now. It's hard to wake up and not look at Twitter. It's hard to wake up and not pull up Instagram. <laughs> like, and, I, and I'm in it, you know. Um, so, okay, if if the first step is really unearthing the love for the game and really getting to the heart of, okay, what what motivates the guy and are the things that are important to him, the, the core values of this recruit, do they align properly with what we're trying to build as a program? 
who are some of the best recruiters you've been around that, that were able to, to do that, that you saw? Well, I think the culture is the best recruiting, you know, like kids, kids know, like you've done it cause you've been in the media as well. Like when you go to interview somebody, they, they know, they know what you're trying to get. Like same deal uh, in recruiting kids, kids know, I think, I think athletes have two things that are really special. One is they've got the ability to love something because they've loved the game since they were probably a kid. And two, they've got a great instinct because you need it to play, right? If you're a wide out of the line of scrimmage you're against press coverage, you're not like pre-planning every move. Like your training takes over, your instinct takes over and boom, boom, boom. And you knock his hands down, you swim through and you get back on your routes, you know, the stem of your route. I think the same thing in recruiting. So the best recruiters that I've been around are the kids is the existing program. Right. And not to like kiss somebody's butt or say, you need to come here, but just be like, dude, it's dope here. You can get education from Rice. You can get education from Stanford. You know, live in LA at SC or UCLA. And so, so that's one. From that point on, like to get specific on individuals, the best ones are the ones that tell the truth. I, I really go back to that. Right. And I, and I get it. Like right now, um, like USC's killing it. Like Dante Williams is just murdering it and recruiting out here. I think a lot of it is telling the truth. And I think it helps when you're down. You know, let's go take back LA. You know, let's put a you know lock around the city. You know, like when when you're fighting and competing and climbing, you're way better recruiter than when you're hanging on. You know, yeah, because you're fighting everybody off. And I've been on both sides of that, and I've seen both sides of that. Right, like just in the iteration of the West Coast, USC to Oregon to Stanford to um, UW to now it's Oregon. You know, like. The climb is fun and you're rolling. And then it's like, whoa, it's the Cali flock. Mario Cristobal is crushing LA the last year and a half, two years. That ain't happening anymore, right? Because he just can't do that well for that long. So um, that, that's, that, that's it for me, you know. I can name a bunch of specific guys. Keith Hayward's great. Marcus Royo's great. Bloom's great. Tavita's great. Like head coaches are talented. Um, but the best ones tell the truth. And I think the best players want the truth. Because if you look at it, we did a study at the Elite 11 for the guys that don't succeed um, in college. And by don't succeed, I don't mean don't play, but like just don't pan out at all. Yeah. For three times, whatever. They were just, they, they went to the place where they were told everything. And then you take it another step further. When I've interviewed players as they pick agents, they all say the same thing, that the hardest decision they have to make is to tell the agents you're not going with them. And they usually say, I'd say seven out of 10 times that they sign with the agent that's, that is the hardest to say no to. They don't sign with the best agent. They sign with a guy that's like their boy that recruited him the best. And they know that it's not right, but they're like, man, but he was so hard to say no to. So I just said, screw it. Like go with him. Wow. Right. So is there an element of that in recruiting? For sure. You know, but I think the best ones are the ones that tell the truth. Cause then the kids end up on their second contract going back to that agent or the kids a year into it call that coach and they're like, dude, I shouldn't have gone here. But at least as of today's podcast, they can't necessarily go tomorrow and have a no penalty to transfer, you know, one time. Um, but that's going to happen. And I think that's going to, you know, have a huge impact on the game. Yeah. And, and that is going to happen soon. My approach is I, I always heard the word de recruiting, the, the de recruitment process. And like, as the worst thing I'd ever heard. And like, I didn't know what it was when I first stepped in, I was like 23 and trying to find my way at Houston. And it's like, why would you not tell a kid how it's going to be and how hard it's going to be and how, 
how hard we grind and, and develop our players because like, why would you tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear and what it's going to take? Because then you can kind of go going back to what you said, like unearthing, like, okay, do they love the game enough? Like I'm going to know based on my first two or three conversations with the kid, if he fits what we're going to do. If, if I, if I at least yeah. approach him with like that honesty. Yeah. So the best part of uh, coach Carroll's recruiting, I'll tell you this story it was awesome. And I tell a lot of coaches that I don't know if anybody embodies it, but he would tell all the freshmen the same thing. They was recruiting. When you come here, you're going to get a chance to start as a freshman. I'm going to give you a chance in the first few days of practice. You're going to run with the ones quarterback. You're going to be in the huddle next to Sam Baker, all American left tackle, Reggie Bush, Lendale white, Dwayne, like you're going to, you got your chance. Cool. He would tell them all that. Just like probably every coach tells everybody in recruiting. And then uh, we would have signing day and the Monday after signing day, back in the day, there's only one of them, and we would have a team meeting. And Pete would play the highlights of every player that he signed. Hey, check out this linebacker, Kaluka Maeva from Hawaii at Kahuku High School. And I told him, I told him, Keith Rivers, he's coming for your job. I said day one, he get a chance to take it. He's gonna. He's gonna run with the ones just like you ran with the ones. Take a look at his highlights. And guys would be chirping, talking smack. Oh, he ain't that good. You know, we're bringing in Joe McKnight from Louisiana. Rest in peace. We're bringing him in to take your job, C.J. Gable or whoever it was at the time. And how do guys deal with it? And he, and what was great is that Pete was so consistent because he told Landell White the same thing when he was in high school. And he told C.J. Gable the same thing and Stephon Johnson the same thing and Joe McKnight the same thing. All the guys the same thing. And then to pay it off, we get to training camp and he'd be like, all right, Sanchez, Liner, you're out. Mark, you're with the ones. And the phrase that I, you know, I'm totally stealing from Pete is that you're going to earn the right to play. You're going to earn the right to not play. And I always felt that was really strong to tell kids like, and I tell this to our five-year-old, like, dude, you're making the decision if you want to watch TV or not. Like, I'm not, you know, like you want to have a tantrum. Okay, cool. Like that's, that's your call. You know, same thing with like, you think you can play? Well, you're an 0 for 7 on third down against number one defense. In seven on seven, like you got no chance right now. You earn the right to not play versus I'm getting hosed and getting screwed. Like coach doesn't like me. Like, no, 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 go prove. We'll play 10 running backs if you all can handle pass protection. And you know how it works. Like competition rises and falls and guys eventually see their truth. And then what do they get to do? Then they're like, okay, this is what I got to work on. And I always felt that was the best approach. And then I, I, being in that room for four signing days, it was so cool to see guys watch their position group come up and a couple players and there was a great respect for it, but it also drove them. You know, I, I was been watching the Jordan documentary, like the rest of the sports world. And we had that competitiveness on our team that Jordan had as an individual. We had that in our program. It was awesome because like it was on all the freaking time and you could lose your job if you didn't rise up. And most guys didn't. You self-describe yourself as a adventurepreneur, storytelling, traveling the world, and I know you love ball and I just want to know, like, who are some of your biggest influences on kind of how you've developed your voice? Because I mean, you're, you're doing documentaries, podcasts, and I know that you're, you're trying to just impact the game in as many ways as possible, but like, who are some of your influences? Yeah, good question. So in our new, this is our new office here, not that the listeners can see it, but I'm going to, we're calling it a muse wall where I totally stole it from Kobe. Um, I was listening to this great podcast with him, with Jay Shetty, and he talked about how in his office he is a muse wall. 
and it's all like great storytellers. And for me, I've really studied over the last 10, 11 years as a broadcaster, the same few people. Uh, Kirk Herbstreit, because I think he's the most likable guy. I met him when I was in college for the first time. And I wouldn't call him a mentor, but he's definitely someone that's been like a guide post for me, you know, a mentor at times. You know, he's always shown up for me when I've needed him. Uh, but I watch him because of his likability, you know, and, and I think he makes the complex really simple in a really, in a brilliant way. Uh, Collinsworth, I love his analysis. His energy and mine couldn't be more opposite, but I love how he breaks the game down. Then you learn about the tools and the toys that he has, and you're like, okay, I don't have those, but how can I still make that happen? And then I used to always watch Trent. I think Trent Delfer was the best studio analyst in football. I still think he is. So those are the three guys that I really, truly have studied. Um, and now I'm, I'm kicking off uh, in the ne next week. Basically, I'm creating a master class for myself where I'm going to interview a bunch of those guys about the craft. Because I'm like, I got time now, and I'm just going to pick it apart. But every year I'll try to talk to – like Bill Bennell or Bo Garrett, like big producers in college football, uh, just to connect to people to try to learn from them. And that to me has always been the biggest thing. But each one of those three specific guys is somebody I learned from. And then I've added to it in recent years, John Smoltz in baseball, obviously really talented. And when Gruden was going, I really enjoyed him. And then I've even enjoyed like watching details with Peyton just to see and listen to how he breaks the game down. The details with Peyton's incredible. Yeah, it's fun. Obviously, part of your process is getting on the phone with the guys that you respect and look up to. But but what else, what, what are some things that you do in your day-to-day -day process as far as getting yourself better and growing at, at your craft? Biggest part for me for prep is to watch. And Trent taught me this years ago, watch it back, watch it back with your eyes closed and walk back and turn around. And does it sound like the same voice? And I've really enjoyed that, that practice of you know, after a game or after a show, like I close my eyes. Cause so much now like shows have become podcast instantly. We do that at the Pac-12. Does it sound differently? Do I still, am I talking too fast? It's my kid, it's like, so it's just like film. Like you gotta watch the game back. You gotta prepare back. Our producer is my biggest coach. His name's Michael Molinari. We do a podcast together. He's, he coaches me hard all the time. So that to me is, is critical. And then, then for me, just being a truth teller. Like I, I started watching games back last night let me just go back and watch some of our games last year. Like, how did I handle big moments? How did I handle third down? How did I handle red zone? What are replays like? Uh, I think it's the same thing as self-scouting. Like, you know, I, I learned this one. I stole this from Troy Aikman, uh, and I, I did it last year for the first time. After every game that he calls, when he goes down to the truck, there's a TV truck, they give him a thumb drive of the game on it, and he watches them on the plane. So I started doing that last year. The game went end, I'd hop on a plane from – Denver, calling Colorado game, fly to LA, and I have two hours, I watched the game back as much as that I could. And that was an amazing experience because I got to kind of put it to bed and I got to learn real quickly what it was. And then I would always, every week, try to take one note into the game. Just one thing from the previous game to the next game to try to improve upon. How frightening was that to hear yourself for the first time? You know, that's a good question. It, it never has been, you know, it, it, it's frightening to listen back now, like, cause I'm like, how did I even get the job? Like, I can't believe they let me work. But in real time, I've always been really comfortable um, on a mic. Um, I've always wanted that. I think it's because when you're done playing, the closest thing to playing is coaching. The closest thing to coaching is broadcasting because it's the closest thing to feeling alive and being switched on. So to me, when I call a game, like I ain't never sat for one. I sat for one game my whole career and it was brutal uh, cause my energy wasn't in my body. 
So I'm always up. I'm always moving because I have to. I have to move. I have to feel myself. Um, I'm kicking my legs just like I would if I was sing singling a call in or something like that. You know, I'm grabbing my partner, Ted Robinson, like I would grab another coach after a big play. And I, and I embody that phrase of coaching into broadcasting where it's uh, – when I coached, I only coached five quarterbacks. That's the reason why I left. Now I get to coach a million. That's how I look at it every Saturday. I'm coaching a million people, starting with my mom. How, how do I operate and how do I deal with them? My coaches are, are my parents. They, uh, they listen totally. to the show on Saturdays, hit me up. You know, um, the show is really good, but you keep saying you know what I mean. And, and the, <laughs> hilar the hilarious part is that's not even my thing. That's, that's my wife's. That's what Brittany says because her mom says it. So it, you, you don't notice things until you have someone picking you apart. So um, reading, listening, watching, what are you consuming right now? Like what are you, what are you spending your time you know, just diving into content wise. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to read uh, the book called range right now. Um, it's basically about how, you know, you don't have to be an expert at craft to have expertise. Like you can, you don't have to do just one thing. I've always been pigeonholed in that regard. And it's all, and it, and it makes the argument that you don't have to be an expert to thrive in your profession. You know, you don't have to just be a super obsessive and only coach ball to be a good ball coach. Like, you can be interested in politics or art or whatever. Like, it's kind of like talking about the more range you have, the better you'll be. And I always list in Hollywood, always gotten pegged at like, oh, Yogi's in this bucket. That's how LA works. And I've always been like, well, I'm not just in one bucket. And it took me a while to find a lens that leads to all my buckets, which is kind of where I am finally at now. It took a long time, but I'm consuming that book. Um, I'm consuming a boatload of audio content just because I'm running or I'm working outside. Um, and then of course, like the Jordan doc, you know, not, not only for this, the Jordan story of like what a great competitor he is, but the style of filmmaking. Like, I just think there's, there's so many beautiful ways that you can direct anything. And I think it's an artist's job to try to learn as many as you can versus be like, Oh, oh I only tell films like this. Cause I've been, I've been a producer under directors that are like, well, I was taught this way at ESPN and the way you want to do it is not right. And I'm like, when did one artist have the ability to reign over everybody else? You know, I remember that never s sat well with me. So that, that's kind of where my head's at. And then I'm doing a new podcast with the PAC 12 that has taken up a bunch of time, but I've learned in this time in that our only job now is to find meaning. And if you look at grieving, there's five steps to grieving. The fifth step being acceptance. We all get to the fifth step at some point. One through four can vary very often but there's some argue there's a sixth step and i would agree with it that it's meaning so in this time of being at home not having as much time to be quote unquote productive i think our job is to find meaning in what we do and meaning in the things that we don't do so like for instance i want to write a book let's just say you said that uh but i only need a month off i only had a month off i'd write the greatest book on recruiting in the history of the world and now you have a month off and you haven't written your book so what'd you learn? You learned that the book didn't mean as much as you thought that it did. And I think that's my job now as a consumer of content or a creator of content to be like, what has meaning for me? The five things that I had on my whiteboard that I haven't touched this 48th day of the quarantine or whatever it is, they don't have any meaning, at least what I thought they did. So let them go. So what has meaning? Pac-12 football, great meaning. Being the main uh, authority on the West Coast in college football that has meaning for me and real responsibility that I take seriously and creating a really cool podcast like those are the three things that have meaning and then my family and my mental and physical health period so I haven't really tried to do anything outside of that 
during the time that we have all this supposed time to to do whatever we want. Tim Ferriss calls it the uh, the not to do list. Yeah, there you go. It's, I mean, I, I could go through a bunch of stuff that I have not done because I, you know, at the end of the day, you got to focus on you know what the meaning is. That's such a good point. Just to sidetrack, did you feel like you kind of got bucketed into quarterbacks only as a quarterback coach and elite eleven guy early? Yeah. You know that that was yes, and it was on purpose, and it was okay. You know, I remember Steve Sarkeesian told me. So when I started at SC, I was working with Lane Kiffin and the receivers. And that was natural for me, right? Like I played the position. Nobody on our staff had played the position. Lane was a quarterback. So I probably had the most, you know, knowledge of like what it's like to play the position because I was the only one that did it, right? So that was a great fit. And I got to communicate with, with that. My first year was like Dwayne Jarrett, Steve Smith. Like it was dudes, right? So it, to be able to communicate – and Lane, because he was also the coordinator his first year as the coordinator, him and Sark were splitting the duties. It was great for me. But Sark had always told me, like, dude, you need to get in the quarterback room. You need to get in the quarterback room. I'm telling you, dude, got to get in. Because, and you know this, and this is unfortunate, but it's the truth about college football generally, is that running backs and receiver coaches are like, you know, they're put in a bucket, right? They're the recruiter. And for me, uh, I didn't realize how much truth Sark was singing at the time, but he nailed it. And then my third year, I got into that room and I was like, okay, this is where I can make some hay. And then I got into the late 11 and I was like, oh, wow. Like the things I learned in four years with Frontier Pete and Steve and Lane, like they're different than what's being talked about. Let me just immerse myself in the position. And, and then even as a broadcaster, like you call the game usually from, at least I do, like I'm playing quarterback. You know, yeah. so I want to understand that even as a player, I sat in on quarterback meetings at a receiver meeting. So I always felt I, I had to think like a quarterback and I'm okay that I'm bucketed that I'm glad I'm not like the tight end guy, you know, that probably wouldn't bode, bode well for me. No doubt. But at, at the end of the day, I think it's really cool. Like you, you know, you, you're really concrete about like, you've got a weird relationship with words. Like you really dive into those. Like, and I know storytelling is a big part of you, but when did that start? Like how early of an age did that really that curiosity for what do I really think? Most people you talk to, it's kind of like A then B and then, all right, let's move on to the next thing. Um, but you kind of like dwell on things a lot more than most people. Yeah. Well, yeah. My wife always tells, tells me that too. She's like, man, you like everything has meaning. Like she was <laughs> clowning me last night. She's like, Oh, you know, we're moving. So like you find all these little like tchotchkes that you have. She's like, oh, this was given to your parents in the second world war. Like, why do we have all these things? And, and that's a big deal to me. Like, you know, meaning is, meaning is important. I, I can remember, there's really two stories around that. One around being a writer and having a relationship with words. When I was in fourth grade, I had a basketball coach and he said, Yogi, what do you want to do when you get older? And I said, I'm going to play in the NBA. And he chuckled and he turned to the rest of the staff and the players and he said, hey, everybody, Yogi's going to get his MBA. And they said, no, coach, I'm playing for the Sixers with Iverson in the NBA. And he laughed and he goes, yeah, 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 you're getting your MBA. Might have been giving me a compliment at the time. I didn't know what an MBA was until 20 years later. But it was the first time that anybody took a shot at my dream. And I grew up in a community where like when I played in the backyard, somebody was Bird, somebody was Magic, somebody was Jordan, somebody was Barkley. There was four of us. 
Then when we, when we played every sport, like somebody was Montana, somebody was Rice, somebody was Ronnie Lott, like, like everybody had like that you were going to play in the pros, period. End of story. So when I got, when, when I heard that, it was the first time somebody said I wasn't going to play in the pros. That's how I interpreted it. So I went home and I began to write for the first time. And behind me, I have every journal since I was in college. And y'all go back and read them from time to time. And like some of them are pathetic, some of them are insightful, but they all have a relationship with words. So I, I say that because then as I got older and I played, what I recognized at the time was when a coach says something to you, you remember it. When a recruit, if, you're, if, if I was a recruit and you were telling me how I can achieve my dreams, I remember that, right? So when you say to me, man, you haven't gotten out of your break well all day, that hurts or that pisses me off or that motivates me. Or you say, dude, kicking ass stock block and that's a great job by you, super selfless. I remember that, right? It might just be a throwaway sentence for you. Then when I got to SC, I got to hone it and I talked to Pete about it. He'd always say, you got 10 seconds to make a decision, right? How you want to impact this kid. Okay, Mark Sanchez throws a pick. I got 10 seconds to either make myself feel good and be like, what were you doing when we went over that? Too high, you never make a whole shot throw. Or I say, hey man, clearly I didn't explain that well enough. We're gonna work on it. Let's get to the next snap, uh, but put a pin in it. Like one of the two is going to make the player feel something. One of the two is going to make me feel something. What's the best decision? What's the best relationship with words? I feel the same way now coaching now. I go to practice. I went to your practice and I, Mike would bring me in afterwards and say, what do you think of our coaches? And I hope I would say, man, you guys practice with great energy, great enthusiasm, and man, your coaches are smart. But if I heard a coach say, let's go, let's go, let's go, I would tell your head coach and be like, hey, man, go where? Because I had that told to me when I was 22, 23, 24, or like, and start to really understand, you know, Ted Robinson, my partner, always coaches me, and I, it's a working progress of economy of words, right? Like, can you have, like, as a podcast host, the best questions are the shortest questions, right? Yeah. They just yeah. are, because boom, to the point. I know that they impact other people. I've heard from parents being like, oh, what you said about my son? I couldn't even remember what I said, but I knew I was thoughtful about it in real time. And the difference between like, he can't play right now, major college football versus right now when he sees this quarterback, a scheme that has a stand-up defensive end and defensive tackle, that's hard for him. I said the same thing, but it's interpreted differently. And, and that's a conscious choice for me in my craft the experience you got at USC in that environment has, has that been like the kind of catalyst that you knew what you wanted to do when you were done coaching? Probably. Yeah. To a degree. Like I remember Pete saying this one day and uh, I think it was when like Eddie O got the job with Ole Miss. Cause that's right. When I came in, I almost went there one of his years, um, you know, the year I got there, Norm left, Ed left. I think Nick Holt had just become the head coach at Idaho. Guys were launching, right? And a lot of guys launching prematurely. And I'd say the same, like obviously Lane going to the Raiders, Sark turned that job down first. Like, and Pete sat at the head of the staff room table and he goes, guys, this is a launching pad and this is not real. Like, this is not how coaching works. So when you want to cash your card, like be ready. And he was always a champion of coaches going to get their dream job. You know, like, go get it. I'll help you. And then if I don't think you should go, I'll compete to keep you. 
right? That happened with me. I remember I went to the Raiders with Lane, took the job. I was going to coach Randy Moss's receiver at the time. He ended up getting traded before they started the season or whatever happened. And Pete was like, go take it. This is awesome. And I was like, kind of crushed. I was like, really? Okay, I guess I'll do this. I was like 24, I think. And then, then that night he texted me and he's like, hey, let's meet up tomorrow for breakfast. And then he just went to, and he started competing. He's like, all right, let's bring it back. Coach your quarterback, do this. And, uh, and I was like, oh, this is how it works. Like the leverage game or whatever it is uh, was a part of it. But I, I knew it would launch me. And that's why I never left. I, I never went to interview at Ole Miss. I never took the interview at Idaho with Nick. I never went with, you know, a bunch of guys when we could go because I just felt in my gut that what Pete was doing was unique. I did my master's thesis on what makes a great coach great. It was on Wooden, Pete, and Coach K. A little bit of Phil Jackson in there. And I just felt at the time, I was like, man, I'm around something that is so different than not only what I've experienced, because my experience was limited to Pitt for the most part, but it was just so different than anything I studied. And I was like, I'm going to stay. Even if that means I'm going to make 25,000, 35,000. The most I made was $40,000. I remember that. And I was like so rich when that happened. But I just felt like it's not worth taking, like at the time, $100,000 was like a big deal. Like go take a hundred grand at, and I think it's a big deal now, but in coaching, uh, go take a hundred grand at X job. I was like, what's happening here is different. And I wanted a PhD in how to build a program. I wrote a book about it, my own book, got to write Pete's a wanted mastery. So then in my mind, I was like, when I go to broadcasting, I'm going to be Herb Street. Now that's not the right thought now, but at the time I was like, nobody in broadcasting can do what I do. Nobody played and coached here. You know, the head coaches I can't compete with, but former players, I can compete with that. I can't compete yeah. with former Heisman winners or guys that are just huge. Like Tim Tebow, I get it. He's always going to see the table, but put me next to somebody that like a high school kid doesn't know where they played. I can dominate that because of I sat in the press box as Lane called plays at Notre Dame Stadium. I stood on the sideline and relayed plays as we beat UCL, like whatever the scenario was. I coached in four Rose Bowls, like Pete, I wrote his book. Like I just knew that the more of that would benefit me long-term versus go get a job, go get paid and start on the carousel of coaching. You, you wrote a thesis on what makes a, a great coach great but you've also been around some of the best to play it at the college level. And one that was able to couple that were able to make it and be elite at the next level as well. Your roommates, Antonio Bryant, Larry Fitzgerald, obviously they both had a little bit different career trajectories and you know them pretty well, but what separates the guys that what separates the good from the great for, for the recruits listening to this show or for anybody listening to this show that, that wants to, not just be good, but be, you know, great, be elite. Yeah, I, I think it comes back. And I have this conversation with every Elite 11 kid every year. Like, you have to love it. I did this video for SC a long time ago called Do You Love It? But it was the truth about, like, if you love something, you do anything to protect it. And, uh, and I feel the same way about the game. You know, Larry Fitzgerald, his, his love for the craft, for the, like, we call it the lonely work, you know, his love to do, you know, to do the boring things longer, not longer than anybody else, but just do the boring things longer. Stances and starts, one-handed catches, you know, over-the-shoulder catches, you know, like the proper diet, never having a sip of alcohol. Like if you really want it, you know, like you'll do anything to protect it. 
And a friend of mine named Kevin Carroll, no relation to Pete, he wrote a beautiful book called The Rules of the Red Rubber Ball. And he would always say, Yogi, people are constantly telling you who you are. Who, excuse me. He would always say, Yogi, people are constantly telling you who they are. It's up to you to decide if you want to listen to it. And I think the same thing with players, right? Coaches all the time, like we get enamored with the potential of a kid. And that's amazing because our job is to, as we talked about, unearth it and pull it out of them. They don't know. Their brains are still mush. Till you're 25, your brain is still even developing. But you can tell if they love it. And I think, again, back to being a truth teller, when you tell a kid, like, do you love the game? Yeah, I do. Do you, do you want to play it forever? Yeah, I do. Do you want to provide for your family? Yes, I do. Okay, you know you've got the skill set. Yeah. You know you have the size. You know you have the blah, 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 blah. But the fact that you're late to every meeting shows me that you really don't care. Like, so, so there's these four levels of competitor that I'm just going to steal from Gus Bradley that, that we use all the time now. Uh, level one is a survivor, right? It's usually a freshman. You're just trying to survive as a competitor. Just get me through camp, get me through the day, surviving. Level two is a competitor. That's at least I would dub it that. And that's like, I'll do anything if prompted by somebody else. I'm a wide receiver. I see a wide receiver stay late after practice. I'll stay late. So my decisions are based on somebody else's actions. Third level, I could call it a true competitor. This is somebody who's not worried about anybody else's actions. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to come early. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to be a baller. That was, that's pretty much all high performers. And then what I'll coin is the pure competitor. Gus has a different name for it. Uh, a pure competitor to me is somebody that says, I don't need to be motivated by anybody else. And, hey, you who play the same position as me, let me teach you how I just beat that coverage. Hey, let me teach you how I use my eyes to manipulate this defender, even though I know you're trying to take my job. That supreme confidence is what the best of the best are to me. You know, you're proving yourself right. You're not proving others wrong. And that's what I would tell. And that's what I do tell high school kids. Like, do you really love it? Because you didn't prepare. We gave you 85 concepts. Like you couldn't draw 10, let alone you should draw all 85. So I just think it comes back to that. You know, and there's a story at the, in, the, in the league where a, a player raised his hand. I, I won't say his name. And he goes, oh, I love that, coach. I'm totally a pure competitor. And he goes, no, you're not. All you do is complain about how much money you don't get. And all the other receivers have more money than you. And he was like, oh, damn, you're right. Right? So I think it's our job as recruiters or coaches or mentee, mentors, to call it out. Right? Like, you do it with your kids. Like, Hey, is this the right thing to do? Like, should you have like punched me, right? Or should you have like thrown a rock against the window? Like I tell Zane all the time, what's my job? He goes to teach me the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. So kids know it. Play your players know it. They know when they're skirting a corner and cheating on an exam or not finishing through the line, whatever. Like, I just think those things are like super call outable. And I think we should. And then we'll find out how much you love it. Because coaches to this day, I've seen one player in my 20 years get screwed. It was a kicker on playing time. One time. Nobody gets screwed. You play who you trust. Period. Yeah. And for the kids that want to bitch and moan about not playing, I'd say, dude, can I trust you? Let's go look at the practice date. The thing that I love is you earn the right to not play. Like yeah. every single day. That's your resume. Like practice. Yeah, we're talking about practice. Yeah. <laughs> You, know you earn I mean? the right to knock. To, you earn the. You earn it all. You earn it as a head coach. Like it sucks that. Think about it. like I talked to a friend of mine who's an AD at Villanova, Mark Jackson. I love him, and I'm like, what's it like to go to bed at night as an AD? And he's like, it's terrible because sometimes you can think about like, 
you know, somebody on the rugby team might make a really poor life decision and cost you your job. But that's the job description, you know? So like, did you exhaust all opportunities to educate? Like Chris Peterson told me a story once where he was so mad that a couple of his players at Boise got in trouble uh, for something really inappropriate. And he was so frustrated because earlier that day, he gave him a presentation about the specific topic they got in trouble for. Right? Like it's, it's just part of the deal, you know? Like, so sometimes you got to wear it when it doesn't work out. It's not always going to, but if you love it, you'll do anything to protect it. That means you'll protect the teammate. Like Pete, our number one rule on our program, I could, I could pull it up right here. We had three rules at USC and he has them same in the, in the Seahawks of the league. Number one is protect the team. So what does that mean? Oh, somebody's drinking and driving. You don't let them drive, right? If somebody's late, you wake them up. If you're their roommate, like you protect the team, like you're in the media, you don't throw them under the bus. It, it, everything falls under protect the team. The second one is no whining, no complaining, no excuses which as a coach, because you can imagine calling somebody out like, you're a rule number two violator. Are you, are you complaining right now? Are you whining? Are you making an excuse? And then rule number three is barely. And barely is not about being early. Be, being early is about being organized. You know, like, is your, is your life in order so you can be early? Or are you always scrambling, you know? It's, it's the, the, the reactionary versus anticipatory. Totally. Great phrase, yeah. So... Talking, anticipating, and being reactionary, big part of the quarterback position. Obviously, you know, you had a lot of experience. You coached guys like, you know, Matt Barkley, Mark Sanchez, John David Booty, Mitch Mustaine. I mean, guys that were talented. Then you worked in, in the Elite 11. You were very involved with that. You saw so many different guys. Just talk me through how this has changed with the platform recruits have nowadays. You know, the name image likeness takes it to a whole nother level, but even from when you were in the coaching industry over a decade ago, talk me through like what you've seen in, in the, the evolution of recruiting the quarterback position. Wow. That's a good question. Um, I've seen a lot in the evolution. What hasn't changed is quarterbacks want to play. You know, what has changed is figuring out who can play, you know, and, and either having the patience as a coach or as the quarterback. That's changed. I was at TCU in 2009, my first Elite 11 camp on the road. And uh, I was working for ESPN. And I'll never forget it because I saw so many athletes, not just playing quarterback anymore, but athletes that were playing quarterback they could pass. And I started doing research on seven on seven in Texas and started talking to guys like Kyler Murray's dad, who was a you know one of the first you know, personal QB coaches in Texas. He was at the camp and I was like, something's happening here. Like this, this position is changing. Like it's not all about the trees anymore, which are like six, four, 230 pound guys that just can deal like the, it's shifting. So yeah, the game clearly has shifted. Anybody can tell you that you just got to watch the Super Bowl to, to know that the position has changed, but the makeup has changed and it's muddied. Like it's super muddied. Because I think now it's harder than ever to figure out who can play, like who can really play. Because a lot of guys can just, in air quotes, play. Yeah. A lot of guys can deal, right? Look at, you know, nobody in the world recruited Gardner Minshew, Anthony Gordon, Luke Falk. Literally. Luke Falk was a walk-on. Gardner Minshew came from nowhere. Anthony Gordon was a JC guy, right? Like we're just talking about air raid, a couple guys in my community. Yeah. 
but they can deal. And there's 20, Baker Mayfield, I showed him a picture of himself in high school at the Heisman. And I was like, would you have recruited this guy too? Cause he was pissed at us for the elite 11, which I loved that. Like we were on his list of like who to get back at. Uh, but I remember showing it to him and, and he kind of laughed too. Cause he looked like what well, you'd imagine he looked like at 16. Yeah. But a lot of those guys exist. So how do you unearth who has grit a love for the game. Like that's the hardest part again, because now those kids are making decisions prior to coming to summer camp. Those kids are making decisions prior to taking a visit. Those kids are making a decision prior to obviously a senior season, you know, let alone even a junior season at times. Like it's just, it's way easier to miss. So like, I'm not surprised when I see, I think it was from 2012 to now, I think like 60% of the five-star quarterbacks have transferred. Yep. You know, like, I'm not surprised by that because it's just too hard. I think it's really hard to figure out who can play. I see it at the Elite 11 every year of like, this you can deal. But then you look at the scenario he's going into and the coach and all this stuff. Like, that's become way harder to kind of figure out because I do think for a coach, gotta be curious, like your roster, like, you might be able to go win with three quarterbacks. You might. I don't know who they are, yeah. but they all can play. They've all had success in you know, certain off. I don't know. I just think that that's the hardest part right now at the, that position. Do you think we're like shortchanging it by uh, escalating and accelerating uh, decisions? I mean, you know, kids are getting offered so early and it's kind of like there's this subconscious battle to be, to be the first, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think recruits got to feel that too, where it's like, well, if I don't commit, you know, the three other guys they've offered might commit. Like, how how do we fix it yeah it's a serious it's it's real you know the to me what i would fix is i I wouldn't even like that to me is that's a sad state of affairs like you look but but it's going on everywhere right like in your you're a lacrosse player you commit you know before your sophomore year in high school yeah that you know like so it's going on in other sports to me the the biggest fix was the ncaa's biggest flaw in my opinion in recruiting is they stopped coaches from going to these summer camps, right? So you can have your own elite camp, but if I have an elite 11 camp in Houston, you can't go to it. Yeah. Unless you have a kid who's competing at it. Why not? Back in the day, it'd be Chip Kelly, Jim Harbaugh, Pete Carroll, like you, dude, you'd be, it's the who's who. They'd just be lining the practice. They'd all bring their little uh, lawn chairs and sit behind the quarterbacks in the 50 and just watch. We would, right? like, we would kill to do that right now. Right. But, we would and, kill but think, to do that. If I'm a volleyball coach, I can coach an AAU team. I could be a college volleyball coach and coach high school kids. And if I'm a college volleyball coach at a Nike school, I can coach an AAU team that's sponsored by Adidas or Under Armour. So, like, everything's muddied except college football. Like, like they, they took it away. And you have the biggest amount of misses. And most importantly, you've got the big, biggest amount of, I believe, what will become. And it's grown in college campuses, but in football specifically – Anxiety and depression is skyrocketing. Why? Because there's a label on quarterbacks and then they don't receive it. Jawan Pass, perfect example. Jawan Pass is at Louisville or what? I don't know if he's there anymore. And when I met him in high school, it's on the Elite 11 documentary. I directed it that year. On his arm is tattooed NFL at 16. Wow. Cool. Amazing. You got goals. I'm not, that's awesome. And I can remember talking to his family being like, he's going to get us the league and that's, what's going to help us out. And I was like, wow. And Juwan was like a, an acquired skill set. 
he was kind of like a hybrid. Like, is he Lamar Jackson? Is he Teddy Bridgewater? Like, he had a little bit of everything. Um, but you couldn't see him in high school and be like, yeah, that's a dude. And it, it's hard to do that anyway. But he didn't have that type of stuff. Like, it was, it was just hard to figure out. And he, he, he didn't finish the season as a starter at Louisville. Right? He's in his like third or fourth year. So I don't know where he's at, but why do I say that? I say like, I just think that the amount of pressure on these kids by rankings, recruiting is growing, but the people recruit, actually recruiting them don't even know. Like how, how, why should I know a player better than you? You're running recruiting. Yeah. Why do I know a prospect better than you? It, it, it's cool for me and my life as a broadcaster when I call Jared Goff's name, you know, when I call... Justin Herbert's name when I broadcast a game with Jaden Daniels, but Herm Edwards should have known him better than me, you know? Yeah. Like prior to that, and he should have been able to go to wherever he is. And, and that to me is like, that's been super unfortunate uh, over the course of the last 15 years. And I can't imagine the, the weight of your whole family saying, yeah, you know, him making the NFL is going to take care of us. That's, that's brutal. It's brutal, but and I get that that's real too, you know. And and I don't have a problem with that necessarily because you compare it to like other kids who go to college. But the context of it, like to me, it's our my kid is going to go to college and be able to get a degree and take right. care of our family, you know. And, and that's just hard. Like that's that's the harsh reality of of where we're at, you know. And I'm sure that uh, whoever recruited him at Louisville was familiar with that. And maybe they lean into it. Like we can get into the league. We can make that tattoo a reality. Cool. Like I get that that's recruiting, but there's a dark side of that. Like, so I've I talked to one of the top recruits, probably one of the biggest busts in the history of college football a couple of weeks ago. And nobody knows his story. And it went really dark. And that to me is the hard part. Like we see a kid that doesn't play and we label him him bust because he didn't live up to the hype that somebody else created that kid wears that forever. So every documentary, every article that you read about, well, when people finish in the NFL, 50% of them or whatever the number is are on drugs, divorced and broke. Cool. Fair. But you know how many more college football players are than NFL players? Yeah. Like 10 X legit. You look at the numbers and the, the only difference between them is they're not divorced because they didn't get married, but they're broke or uh, potentially on a substance and are dealing with substance abuse. Well, they got three so quarters. The they, they, they got three quarters of their life to live. Thank you. Yeah. So where's the help for that? So, so the positions changed a lot, and the back end of the position hasn't changed a lot because when kids are done, they're still done. You know, like alumni departments do their part and they do their best. But if it was me, all oh, everybody wants name, image, and likeness. Screw that. I would do two things. One is I would develop a plan to take care of athletes post college. Right. And they would start with health insurance. You want to make 20 grand in your career on endorsements? You want to make 200 grand in your career off endorsements? Go ahead. Uh, but would you rather have health insurance for the rest of your life? Mm. Right. If anybody with any sense would say the latter. When you think about, you talk to anybody who's 30, 40, 50, 60, former college football player, didn't make it a league, they wish they had health insurance coverage. Right. And I'm speaking as a guy who broke his neck, didn't get it done until after college. So health insurance is one and then mental and health support pre-college, right? Like let's, let's help these young men out. And by doing that, let's let the coaches get to know them. Let's make sure this relationship is as good as it possibly can be. 
I get there's recruiting that exists. That's never going to end. I'm a champion of it, but there's a way to do things. Right. And that's why I love what David Shaw does. Why I always think David Shaw is the conscious of college football. And clearly you guys are an extension of that. Yeah. And he's coach Bloom has brought so much from what they do at Stanford to, to where we are. And we look at it, there's five places in the world, in the country that in the world where you can get a world-class education, play big time ball. It's, us, Northwestern, Bandy, Duke, and Stanford. So you see a lot of guys that that don't make it, and we talk through, you know, the grit is so important, the love for the game, and ultimately it comes down to the makeup. Like, do you have the makeup, the, the mental fortitude to handle the pressures, the expectation, playbook, being a, you, you have to lead every snap, every time you're in the huddle. But – for a lot of these young quarterbacks and, and not even just quarterbacks, just recruits in general that, you know, my first conversation with them on the phone, you know, normally is when the kid isn't offered. Like I, I try to be the in-between. I want to figure out what's important to you before I link you up with somebody a level above me, which would be position coach, coordinator, head coach, because it, there's got to be some context of how we're approaching it. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. I'm not doing the square peg in a round hole, but a lot of times these kids don't have a good sense of developing their, you know, everybody says their factors, but like what, what's important to them and, and what they're trying to get out of this experience, because it's not just experience, like it's a generational impact on, you know, their family and, you know, kind of sets the course for, you know, the next, it's not the four years, it's the 40 years, you know, approach. What, what advice would you have having played the game? having, you know, you went from being a walk-on to earning a scholarship to coaching, and now you see it from like 10,000 feet elevation. What advice do you have on developing a criteria uh, if you were a recruit kind of going through the process? Yeah, some some have done that. Like the Garbers family out here, Ethan Garbers, he took me through it like him and Chase, because Chase did it when he went to Cal, and Ethan signed at Washington, and they had like the whiteboard out every wow. visit had like the 20 categories. Right. And, and I love that. Right. Put it on paper. Like it ain't real till you write it down. There's a phrase that um, I'm a huge fan of, but for, for me to, to try to answer your question, I think if I'm a recruit, I have to first and foremost to just survive, I have to be a seeker. Right. And that's my favorite word. And I think quarterbacks have to be this. And the age that everyone is in, every recruit grew up with a smartphone, grew up with Google. Like being a seeker is somebody who's trying to like learn, understand, stay on your razor's edge, always be switched on, keep your wonder switch on, like feed your brain in different ways. Like, are you seeking ways to improve at your craft? And are you seeking the tools that you need to thrive at your craft at the school that you're going to go to? That's through research. I'm talking to one of the bigger uh, who's in the portal. And a lot of times we talk about just the truth of like, dude, you just want to play. Like you want to play. You want to go, go about the ball. Like well, all the other stuff at the end of the day, like you want a great degree. Got it. That's You're going to get that. Yeah. Because colleges are really competitive and impressive. And if you got the grades to your point, you'll be able to compete to get to one of the five that you referenced. So, okay, check on that but you want to go play. So what are you seeking? Like to me, to see kids commit to a coach that they've never seen 
coach them is a major red flag. And I tell kids this, go to camp and tell the coach, coach me. Let him evaluate you and you evaluate him. And if you think your quarterback coach is going to be there for three years, it's probably not the best place for you to go. Because if he's good, he's out in three years, right? And if you're good, he's out in three years if you're playing. So I just go back to the word seek. Like, are you a seeker? Like, truly. And that's the first word in my, if I was the head of a recruiting department, seek and uncover players who have an infectious love for the game. Like, it goes both ways. Like, you're a player. Do you seek you know, like you, you, you have to do that because if you're going for the Nikes or if you're going for the swag, or if you're going for the visit, if you're going for the cheerleaders, if you're going for the, like all that stuff's cool. Like I went to Pitt because the most amount of people went to a game and they played Notre Dame. Like I didn't do any of this. I went because Urban Meyer turned me down and Bob Davey turned me down and I was like, screw them. They chose Ronnie Rodimer. I'm going to the school that plays them the most. that gives me a chance and I want to play on Thursday night on ESPN. I'm not going to Delaware. I'm not going to Princeton. I'm not going to Ithaca. I'm not going to a small school. I didn't do any of this. Zero. Like the one thing I noted, I was like, okay, my position coach was a former walk-on. I'll have a chance. And that's yeah. why I went to Pitt. Right. So it, you should take that and and multiply it by a hundred. But the beginning steps is like, like, do you know him? Right. Like, think about Peyton gave a great example. We tell the quarterbacks all the time. When you're preparing for the draft. A GM, Trent Balky brought this up. Uh, we did a session with it was it was awesome. It was like Stidham, Tua, Jalen Hurts, uh, Trace McSorley, Drew Locke in a room. And on the other side, it was Mike Gervais, me, Trent, Dilfer, and Trent Balky, who was the former GM of the Niners. His year out, he's with Jacksonville now. And he and Manny Wilkins was in there too as a quarterback. And he asked them to name the best DB that they went against. Can you have the best cover corner in the SEC? Best cover corner in the Pac-12? And guys struggled. And what he taught them was that Peyton Manning used to have this notebook. He had two notebooks. One had all media members in it. And he would like take notes like, oh, uh, Yogi's like this. Oh, Alex is like this. Oh, so-and-so as Bruce Feldman would ask this. And so you knew uh, his wife's name is this. His kids, he just had a kid. Uh, so he got to know people that were writing about him. But he did the same thing for defenders. So he, so he could say like, yeah, year one, I don't know, Deion Sanders, right? Or he, he played press coverage like this. Year two, he played it like this. Year three, more off, whatever it was. And for college guys, they get asked that a lot heading into the draft. Like, tell me about going up against, I don't know, Kevin King, right? Let's just say you were a couple of years ago in the Pac-12. He's now plays in the league. He's a UW corner. Could you tell me details about him? Like literally susceptible to double moves. Like how well do you know him? And I... I just think that's like such a great example of like, if I'm getting recruited, how well do I know my coach? Like if I asked one of your recruits, could they tell me like who Mike Bloomgren coached under at the New York Jets? Probably not. Yeah. But they should know it. And that's on you to tell them it and teach them like, this is how you study, right? This is what you should know. You should know where guys come from. Like in recruiting, it's always thrown around like most NFL experience. And I think those graphics are awesome. Like Arizona State kills that. Everybody's like been in the league for 20 years before they got to ASU. You know, Marvin Lewis, Herm, you know, Antonio Pierce, Kevin Mawai. Like there's tons of guys there. But if I'm going there, I'm like, well, who'd they learn from? Yeah. Dude, like, like, do you know that Herm Edwards was an undrafted free agent when they had like 12 rounds in the NFL draft and he never missed a practice in eight years in the league? Holy crap. How did that happen? You know what I'm saying? Like, 
That's where I would love recruits to go. And that's when I talk to them. I'm like, cool. High state's awesome. What else do you know about Ryan day? Do you know where he started? Cause Ryan day is one of my favorite guys in the country. Like I just such admiration for him. Um, but anyway, that that's, that's how I would kind of answer that very long windedly. The thing that drives me crazy is you have so much access to everything, like to everything, like don't have to deal with dial up internet. I mean, it's just like right at your fingertips. If, if you really care about it, it kind of goes back to like, if you really love it, like you're going to know what you need to know about people. And then it's a matter of feeling the connection. Yeah. And I, and I think there's like a, a beautiful balance to that too. Like I remember talking to, uh, you know, one of the more prominent quarterbacks in college football. And he's like, you know, I don't really watch Monday night football. I don't really watch a lot of football. Okay, cool. Noted. Doesn't mean you don't love the game though. So why not? Like, you know, I love to draw. I love music. Okay, cool. How do you interpret the game? We had a guy years ago named David Osbury. I don't know. He might still be playing. I don't even know. He played in the NFL for a long time. He was a wide out, huge human, beautiful. Couldn't run a three-step slant. Just couldn't do it. And frustrated, right? And then we kept, we started sitting back. We're like, what is David always doing? He's always listening to music. So what if we taught David to run a three-step slant like it was a beat? Ba-boom, boom, ba-boom, boom, ba-boom, boom. To me, again, unearthing, right? Job to unearth, like Pete would always say, learn your learner. Like you got to learn your learner. So you have to love the game. doesn't mean you have to be a coach and only watch film. A lot of guys do that. Like I talked to Jared Goff. He came on our podcast the other day. He said, you know what? Like some people in the league think they need to be Manning, but you don't. Like he, that was just his unique trait. Like I learned, he learned over the course of his career in the NFL now of like when, is, when it's time to stop. Yeah. watching and preparing so I, I don't think you have to be a psychopath in terms of like only watching ball all day long i think you have to love the game with everything you have and it's okay to be well-rounded it's okay to have other interests it's okay to be diversified but do you love the game or do you just play it and you know guys like josh rosen have been mislabeled in my opinion in that regard i think you know josh loves the craft but he also has other interests There's nothing wrong with that but to me then it's on the coach of like all right how do i relate those interests to my program or as a recruit how do those interests relate to the program i'm looking at so this could tie back to you on being a sports analyst like not everybody has to be kirk herbstreet now that's the guy you idolize and the guy you look up to but what is your process like how has that evolved when you're getting ready to call a game like your process from diving into the film to diving into really building out how you're going to approach it yeah, no, I tried at first a bunch of different ways and asking guys how to do it. And then I just said, you know, I got to go with what I know, you know, which um, I just do what I do when I coached, you know, so I just build out, I'll show you one. So like I build out legit call sheets that look like Mike Bloomgren's call sheet or Stanford's call sheet to call a game. So instead of like third down plays, it's where I have third down calls that I would predict or what they like to do on third down. Right in the red zone, I have a red zone section that doesn't have red zone plays, but it has like who they want to target or what the coach said about the red zone, how they're going to improve in the red zone. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to lean to what I know and where I've gained mastery. And again, I go back to my my advantage is like you're never going to come to listen to me call a game necessarily, and that might be a little too harsh, but you're going to stay once you tune in. Yeah, you know, and I've always felt that. Sit me next to the biggest name in the country, you'll tune in for him, but you'll stay for me, you know? And that's, that's a little arrogant. And I know that, but 
I believe that the way that I prepare, I'm going to offer things that are just going to be a little unique. What has changed? My confidence in that. Like I used to go for a run before every game and I'd rehearse what I would say in the open. It's terrible. You know, yeah. now I couldn't tell you what I'm going to say as the open is happening, but I have a great trust and I have a mantra that I repeat to myself prior to every broadcast that I'm like, that, that gets me to the, the place where I get to go. I mean, I tell myself the last thing I say is like, okay, Yogi, you know, you've earned the right to compete freely, you know, go let it rip. And, and I've got a, you know, about five things that I tell myself, I take myself through this in like a meditative approach prior to every game. And and then I just trust that it's in there. Colin Coward years ago said something that freaked me out. He said, the hardest job in sports is college football analyst because you have to say something smart about 200 times a game in 15 seconds or less. And I was like, oh my God, how does that ever happen? And I'm like, but I've done it for eight years or whatever it was at the time. And, and then I just, you know, and now I've, I've obviously not freaked out by that, but when you think of it like that, it could trip you out. But I just say, you know what? My job is to call the game. You know, at the bottom of my call sheet, it said the same thing for 12 years. Celebrate the game, coach the viewer. Only two jobs. Celebrate the game and the game I love. So I'm not going to shit on kids. I'm not going to take shots. I'll tell the truth. Should have made the catch. You got to make that play. But I'm never going to go dark on anybody. And I'm going to coach my mom on cover two. Yeah. You know, and that's where I got to be purposeful with my language. And I'm still working on it every day, every year. But it's a... It's a fun process to work through. I think the experience of you playing and coaching too kind of gives you just a different competitive mindset. Like, um, obviously, there's there's a bunch of things you got to check off to be a recruitable quarterback. Like, this is taking a different approach right now. You're really like, what the hell is he talking about right now? But to me, there's two things. It's like, do you have self-confidence? Because at some point in life, like, somebody's going to doubt you and somebody's not going to believe that you can do something. But if you can continue to have that confidence and still yourself because you've done the work, like however you get to that place, like it's different for everybody. But if you have self-confidence and toughness to deal with the crap that you're going to deal with, like those to me are like the two critical things. I know your, your deal is grit. And I think at the end of the day, it kind of encapsulates both of those. But before this podcast, just so our listeners know, I mean, like I, I was trying to call you and give you a heads up on what to do. And you're like, no, no, no. Like, let's, let's see where this goes. And, um, dude, I really appreciate you jumping on the show. Like I really, really do. And, um, if, before we kind of get in the last three questions, um, where, where can our listeners find you? I know, I know you got a bunch going on. You got your own podcast, but you got the new podcast coming on. Yeah, no, thanks. So well, let me just finish with one other thing on that. Um, I think now, like I, I love the idea of grit and like, you have to have that, but I'm so tuned in to emotional intelligence now. Like, I mean, dramatically tuned into it. Like we did the elite 11 last year. And for the first time in 22 years, we didn't vote on who won. We let the kids vote on it. Wow. Because emotional intelligence is loosely defined because I'm not going to nail it is having the capacity to deal with the thoughts of yourself, the thoughts of others and to do it with empathy. Right. So I think of a quarterback room, which is kind of been the theme of this conversation. Do you have the capacity to deal with your own thoughts, which are great and dark? at that position the thoughts of others who are great and dark right because they're like oh, i'm better than you right they're having that real-time discussion and then do you have empathy for the other people in the room knowing that there's five of us here or three of us here or whatever it is only one of us is going to play and i just got named the starter and we 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 
we hammered that home in such a fun way, even around, we brought the military in to do uh, peer reviews. So you and I could talk to each other right now, Alex, and there's no like, hey man, I love you. This has been really fun. But like, I, I might've asked a question like this. I'm not allowed to say that. I'm allowed to, I just go, you could improve here. So now I'll be 17, I have to say that to one another. And we put three guys in pods, four guys in pods, and they had to vote on who the best player was. We had Bryce Young, went to U, uh, Alabama, was at SC at the time. We had uh, Drew Pine, who's at Notre Dame. We had CJ Stroud in the same group. CJ Stroud was the most non-recruited guy there. Ended up, by the way, winning the MVP, going to Ohio State. They voted on that he was the best player, those two, because they know it was the truth. You know, we made them do that of around emotional intelligence. So I think now with this era of, you know, recruiting, social media, what's going to come down the pipeline around like name, image, and likeness. Like if a coach is not coaching emotional intelligence, they are not doing their job, mm. period. And, and I'd have, and I'm not a fan of coaches getting fired ever, but if you don't do that, you've earned it because you have to be an expert in that. You can't just listen to like, Carol Dweck, or you can't just listen to, you know, a brilliant professor. Like you have to do the work. Yeah. Like, you got to be able to communicate like that. The wonder switch, all the stuff I was talking about is all emotional intelligence based. So that to me is like the biggest thing that I think recruits need to be exposed to. I talk to high school teams like every couple of weeks on zoom now in this time we talk about it like, cause kids don't know it. They have it though. They have the resiliency factor. They've been through some stuff. They just got to be on earth. They've got, yeah. oh, wow. I didn't realize I had that in me. Oh, wow. I've dealt with this before. I've dealt with my own thoughts. Or actually, I need some help with my own thoughts. Coach, can you help me? I talked to Brian Maurer the other day. Brian Maurer came out a couple weeks or a week ago and said, I almost killed myself. Kudos to Tennessee for giving him the help versus saying, man, let's give him help, but he probably can't play. You know, they're saying, give him help and let's see if he can be our starting quarterback. Like, that's okay. You yeah. know, so, so, anyway, that's a tangent, but I wanted to get that across because I, grit is great, but not anymore. That's not it. You can't just have passion for craft and be able to persevere through your stuff. Like you better be coaching kids up and kids need to be learning EQ. No, that's awesome. So what's one thing you would tell, rec I, I the three send-offs are what's one thing you would tell recruits one thing you would tell parents one thing you would tell their coaches one thing i would tell recruits is that all the flair will disappear and at the end of the day none of that matters so seek and uncover everything that you desire from a school and a program yeah that's what i would tell recruits okay parents, uh, parents. i tell parents that it's not it's not um I would tell parents that, and I could say this now as a parent, like, cause it's it shifted in me when I wasn't a parent to when I was like, you have a different perspective. Cause like you do kind of, you live experiences through your kids and that's never going to change. But I would tell parents that like, you don't own your kids, you know, they're just on loan. You know, my dad told me that about Zane, our five-year-old of like, you don't own him. Like he's just on loan, you know? So what's your job is to teach him right and wrong, to prepare him to pick up when he falls down. You know, like those things. Um, 
So I would tell a parent to let the child experience recruiting and then ask the hard questions, right? Like at the end of the day, I've never seen a relationship like a recruit and his mom or dad because that's what they have when it's done. You don't realize it till it's kind of done that that's like a rock for you, but they can ask you the truth. And, and I would say to the parents, like, as fun as it is to put the helmet on and get in on the photo shoot, do it if you want the memory. That's cool. But like your job is to take the helmet off and kind of be Switzerland to a degree. We don't see it, right? We've seen moms be pissed on signing day when the kid doesn't go where they want. And, you know, we could have probably another podcast on that and why that exists sometimes. Uh, but it's not your journey. And, and it's not your bed to make because the kid needs to, if he picks the wrong place to deal with it on his own, you know, the kids that continue to have mom and dad at practice, you know, talking to the coach, coach, why isn't my kid playing? Like you do a study on it. Those guys don't play. Those guys don't pan out for the most part. Kids need to be independent in, in, the, in this regard, in my opinion. Empowering them to make their own decisions. You, you put yeah. the core values in place and then let them go. Yeah. And watch and observe like, you know, Rocky Seto used to say this all the time. Rocky Seto is amazing. You should have him on your podcast. He, uh, the one time, like, he was title was like assistant head coach, defensive something, the Seahawks. You know, he's D coordinator at SC, and he left to be a pasture. Um, or I think that's the right language. Um, and just retired and left the profession. Uh, he's awesome. But Rocky would always say, like, our job is to be a guided missile. And Pete would always say Rocky was his best guided missile because he knew his stuff better than anybody. So I think that's a parent's job is like, you just kind of course correct. You know, we do it. A kid's out of line. Boom. Like I'm, I'm going to go for a bike ride here in a few minutes. And like Zane's going to swerve into the streets. My job is to like, make sure he doesn't get hit by a car, right? And course correct him back to the sidewalk. Right. But I get why he wants to go to the streets. It's way cooler in the street. There's more space. I got to pick a good street to go down, you know, whatever it may be. So I, I just think that it's, it's the kid's decision and the kid can be blinded by shiny objects. So it's your job as a parent to ground them, not to enjoy the shiny objects. And it's hard if you've never been around shiny objects. Like if Zane gets recruited, I'm going to be way different, right? Just like legacy kids are way different because they played. Like Michael Pittman Sr. wasn't enamored when USC or Oregon recruited his two kids. He got it, you know? So that that's it's hard. Like I can't imagine doing it cause I've never done it, but I'd urge to observe and ask questions versus participate and be enthralled. Easier said than done, but I mean, totally. that's, that's, that's the truth. And then the lastly, uh, coaches. I said, don't forget that the relationship your athlete has with you will more than likely be the greatest relationship he has in the sport. To do everything for them. Like even when it's, you know, somebody like you or me, let's just say we were like in high school again and we're like, hey, coach, call up Rice or call up Pitt. Knowing full well that as the coach that neither school was going to offer either one of us. But make the call, you know. And if you're the coach of a star, ask the hard questions. Like I still see it, man. Every – Every kid I've ever been around has, when they reference their impact on them, talk about their high school coach. 
you know, Pete was on a podcast with Steve Kerr. It's a great podcast called Flying Coach. He talks about his Pop Warner coach. He talks about his high school coach. You know, like, don't, don't forget that. Like, there, there, there's a brilliance there. There's a, there's a vulnerability there. There's a transition there. And they're still high school kids. You know, I go back to the Wonder Switch. I, I listen to high school kids get interviewed all, every year at the opening. I stand behind the media scrum, and they get asked questions, and they sound terrible because they try to sound like Tom Brady or a politician or like whatever they see on TV. They very rarely are just themselves. So when can they be themselves? Probably in their high school locker room. You know, so for the coach to, again, meet them where they sweat, it's kind of how we started this thing. Don't forget that because forever, like I could go pet to Pennsylvania right now and I would call up Scott with Silchek and I'd say, dude, let's go do a thousand. We don't have a jugs machine, but he threw a thousand balls to me every day for four summers, you know, it's just what we did. And I would do it right now at 38. And I would freaking love it. Yeah. You know? I wouldn't call Walt Harris and ask him that JD Brookhart and I would have fun talking about it, but we wouldn't do it. It's just, it's different. You know, and I, I don't know if you'd agree with your high school coach, but I just think that there's, there's something there. There's a different relationship. No, my, my high school coach. I mean, like, first off, when you talk about high school coaches, it's like, not just even high school, but like youth, like it's so vivid because like, it's so impressionable. Like that, like when I was playing peewee ball and Dave Jokel, Luke Jokel's dad is coaching us. And, and then, you know, that kind of like set off like, Oh yeah, I love this game. Like, you know, we, we won every single game for three years in a row. Cause we had freaking top five pick on our team. But, um, I actually got to go on the road recruiting this past cycle because we were down a full-time coach. And I mean, the first stop I'm going to is to go see my high school coach, like, you know, and then even, it's not that I went to spend my entire time there. He's retired now. He just stopped coaching this year, David Reese. Um, but I mean, there's just something special about that because they were there at the start of it, you know, like the, at the foundational level. And I, I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to forget that when, you're dealing with numbers and, you know, and um, we are in a results oriented business. Um, but to forget the human element of it is like the, the biggest mistake you could possibly make. Yeah. I always felt if I was a high school coach or if I was, excuse me, if I was a college coach and mid season when my team would be stressed, I would do one of two things. I would take them to a pop Warner practice just to watch, you know, watch a kid in oversized pads run around and to reconnect to the, the joy the, of it. The, the, the hit pads hanging yeah. out, out of the pants. <laughs> totally. Or I just take them to a field. You know, we did that um, wonder switch example at the elite 11 last year. It was all about emotional intelligence. And the first night we took them to a high school field in Texas, which you know very well. And I gave kind of my opening spiel around Friday night lights, man. And we talked about the wonder switch. And we had for the first time in the history of Elite 11, and I stole it completely from Kobe Bryant because he did it with his daughter's basketball team. Uh, we called it an imagination period. And we said, for 10 minutes, I want you to just imagine being a kid again, whether you're a ball boy or you watch your first game here. Go do whatever you want. TJ Finley, who's at LSU, I remember him throwing footballs into a garbage can. Same thing with Drew Pine. You know, so many guys just went and started having fun. And even like Jalen Hurts and Sam Ellinger, they were like, I, I've never done this. So here, like the best in college football, their wonder switch got turned off. Like they weren't enjoying it. Like, where's the imagination? If our imagination is always on, it's, man, I got to work. Media, our top pressure on our team. 
versus like, man, I want to recapture the competitive joy that I always had. And I always felt if I was a head coach, that would be one of the early exercises I would do in Studio One. Dude, this was awesome. I, I really appreciate your time. Where can our listeners go find you? Yeah, uh, just at Yogi Roth on every social platform is easy. YogiRoth.com is kind of the hub for all my stuff. Um, and watch Pac-12 Networks. You know, we're, we're cranking content out there. It's been really fun to be a part of that since it started. And uh, we're rolling. Hopefully, hopefully we get football here at some point whenever it's safe. Getting some uh, positive news through the uh, through the grapevine. Not ready to talk on it yet, but right. ho- hopefully soon. So you have a blessed day, man, and, and thanks again for jumping on the show. Anytime. Later, bro.